You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Okay, good morning, everyone. Today, we're going to be teaching through the Apostles' Creed, the first article of the Apostles' Creed. There is a, a fundamental shape, kind of an underpinning of the Creed, and that is, it is Trinitarian. This is really, really important. There are three major sections, one that addresses God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The basic shape, the fundamental underpinning of all Christian theology is always Trinitarian. Um, There are contenders to that claim who would say, well, not so much. It can really just be God the Father. There is one God, and so it's it's, uh, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Creator. There's nothing else to God. Jesus, that's all complicated. Let's not get into it. The Holy Spirit... That's for some people who are like charismatic and into the Holy Spirit. We believe in God the Father. There's one God. That, that's not actually too far off base of things that we might hear. But Christians would say, no, no, not so. We believe in a triune God, and the basics of our faith are governed by his triune nature. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay? But one of the things, um, well, let me say this too. If, as we come to study the creeds, the creeds are, are new for some of us. Um, and it may be just kind of a new concept altogether, but I want to give us this one illustration that I think might help us understand why creeds are helpful and important for Christian life and understanding. Um, the creeds are, are really getting after one thing. It's being able to see God. The creeds are like a window, kind of like an icon in that way, that help us to see truly who God is. Now think about trying to figure out who God is or see God without having any idea of where to even begin, let alone if God exists in the first place. The creeds help us to see God. And here's what's crazy about the creeds. It's actually not just this dogmatic dump of everything that Christians believe. Make sure you check all the boxes to make sure you're inside the bounds of Christianity. It's way more interesting than that. When we see God truly, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, We see the rest of reality truly. Who we are is now who we are in light of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What's going on in the world, for instance, the crises that are happening all over the globe, the suffering that's going on, the the divisions in the world, things that are happening in our family, all of those things look totally different when we're not viewing them through Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not we have this life and we have these problems apart from a God who exists. And we, maybe we're agnostic and we say, like, we know maybe God exists, but we, we can't really know much about him, so we back off. We're not agnostics. No, Christians say we can know who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that actually determines every, the way we see the rest of reality. It radically changes this. Fundamentally, we're going to talk about that. It gives us a new way of seeing not only God, but ourselves and the rest of the world and our lived experiences. So in some ways, you could say that the creeds, uh, whereas we might think they're concerned with theology or like perfect doctrine or something, the creeds are actually, and that was not untrue to say that, but the creeds are also very concerned with vision, seeing God, seeing ourselves, seeing the world, and seeing him in such a way that we can actually participate in his life. Not so we could just see him through glass, and go, that's cool. 
Um, I, I, there are a lot of people I know who would like love to have their perfect theology in labeled Tupperwares that sit on the shelf and if you challenge them in their system, they will, they will take down the right Tupperware and they will show you and then they'll put it right back on the shelf and then move on with their life. But that's not what we're doing. And the creeds, if we actually inhabit them faithfully, um, we're not, we can't just like keep God on the shelf. He's not a category that we see through glass, but he's actually like, we, we can participate, we can join in on his life. This is why in the service, we don't say, let's stand and say the creed. Our bishop has actually said to us, I prohibit you from ever saying the creed. Instead, I want you to stand and announce your faith in the words of the creed. You see the difference there? We're not just like doctrine machines. We're confessing something that we believe to be true about who God is. So it's very, very personal, and it affects our lived experience with him. Um, We can only act within the world we can see. Stanley Harawas says this, we can only act within the world we can see. We can only see the world rightly by being trained to see. We don't come to see just by looking, but by discipled skills, disciplined skilled, sorry, disciplined skills developed through initiation into a narrative. Um, let me, I want to unpack this a little bit because this is really, really fundamental to what we're getting at here. We can only live in the world we can see. The way that you go to work tomorrow, Emily, and the decisions you make, like with whatever, I don't know, I mean, like, I, I think both of you guys in, in your careers, like the, the worlds that we live in and operate in, whether you go off to work or you're staying home with kids, they're actually, dis, you make decisions based on assumptions you think about the world, about how reality works, right? Like you're, you're not gonna be ugly to each other because you believe that like God loves you and that he's, called you to love each other, right, for instance, Tim and Emily. So in the same way, there's like this, there's something behind the scene, a reality, a truth that you've bought into that determines the way that you live. And that world that you live in, that you're operating in, is a world that you can see. So if there's a chair sitting in front of me, I get to go around the chair because I can see the chair. What if I don't see the chair? I'm gonna trip over the chair like you would at night if the, like, the lights are turned out. We can only act within the world we can see Okay, we get that. We can only see the world rightly by being trained to see. So even the way that we come out of the womb or we think, I am like a neutral person entering into the world, I'm just gonna act objectively and operate and like navigate the world's circumstances and my life circumstances, that's actually totally impossible to do. You are not a neutral agent. You are not an objective perspective. You have been storied, narrated, You have bought into a story of an identity of who you are. Someone has told you, oh, you all right, guys? (laughs) That table may not be working properly. Do you want to, you know what, let's ditch that table and, um, we got room up here. There's a table. Lena. There's got to be like a teaching illustration somewhere in that, but I can't find it. I'm just glad Bev's okay. You okay, Bev? 
We didn't see that coming, right? There it is. Right, the fountain. Yeah, there's something. um, Back to where we were. We can only act in the world we can see, and we can only see when we've been trained to see. We're not neutral agents. We're not objective perspectives. We've actually been, we've entered into a story. And the Christian story is a story that trains us to see reality. We actually come into the Christian story like it's a totally foreign experience to us. What in the world is happening here? And the creed, guess what? The creed is this really explicit statement of that story that we're buying into, that we're saying, I believe this. It is a reality now that we inhabit that governs the rest of the way we make decisions and navigate our lives. Does that make sense? So the story that walks into the building on Sunday is likely a different story than what the liturgy is actually telling us about who God is, who we are, and what it means to to truly live. So there's a story at play. There's a narrative. Even in the the way we lay out the chairs, the way we use our bodies in the the liturgy, it's telling a story. When you say the story that walks into the building, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the story. That's a great question. What do I mean by the story that walks into the building? Yes, those stories that are in our own head, those assumptions that we have about, about where this is all heading and who we are. That stuff isn't just because we have it, those understandings of ourselves, doesn't mean it's true and doesn't even mean that it should not be confronted. It should totally be confronted. Um, There is like this, let's take a detour because I think this is actually really important. Right now, culturally, it is okay to say, you know what, whatever you feel is right is true. So let me ask you this. Someone wakes up one day and says, I'm a loser. If you feel that's right, it's true. You see how destructive and like unanchored a drift that can be for people? That's like actually not helpful. I've woken up thinking, I suck. I suck. I'm the worst. If you feel that, Sean, then it's true. So when you listen to our own self-talk, what you're saying? Well, I'm saying that sometimes what our self is telling us and the world around us is telling us is wrong. And it needs to be corrected. And just because it comes from us doesn't mean that it's like good or right. So if that's the truth, if it's not within us that we find the truth of the story of who we are, where do we look? Well, Christians, and we've been talking about this, um, there is a story that has been revealed to us that we're being caught up in. It's been revealed to us, not just like someone verbally saying a story, but it's been revealed to us in the person of Jesus. He is the fullness of that story that we're being initiated into, that we're being brought in. That's the gospel. No, you don't suck. You're a beloved child of God. And in fact, Jesus has died on the cross for you, raised from the dead, sits at the right hand of God the Father, and governs the course of history, and you're a part of this. That's the story we live in. This is the story that the creed tells. So you can see why what may feel like for us going through a theological statement can feel kind of thin and dry, but if we see the story in it, it's actually really, really significant and helpful for us. Um, So the creed brings to clarity and definition that story that we're being brought into. Um, It's also, in that way, it's helpful for us, but also I think announcing the creed is actually a really missionary act. How is that? Does anyone else hear us? It's It's a pronouncement of faith to the neighborhood because, and here's why, here's why I say that. It's actually a missionary act for us to stand and announce the story of God in the creed because through it, the church gives the world the means to see itself truthfully. What a nice thing to be able to give the neighborhood and the rest of the world the means to see things truthfully, especially in a world where 
like fake news and who's, who gets to say kind of thing is reigning. It's actually a really loving thing to say, hey world, you don't suck and there's a bigger story here. Let us tell you the story. This is the missionary pronouncement is the creed. Okay, does, everyone, does that make sense? That's why I get so like, like jacked up about the catechism and things like the creed and the liturgy. I, I love the robes. I love the ceremony. I love like the reverence that we show. But there's something underneath the liturgy and the creeds and all this historic Christianity that I feel like is a punch in the face to the enemy and a neighborhood who's bought a false story about who God is and what he's doing. There's like something, it's, it's a big come at me bro to the neighborhood of like, God is so good. Wow, he's so good. But underneath it is this like confrontation that packs a punch in the most loving, gentle, pastoral way uh, to our neighbors saying, you are worth something. You're a child of God. God has a plan. He's coming for you. He has a plan for you. Come and see who he is. There's like guts to it, and I love that. It's not just song, 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 sermon, song, 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 because that's what you know, gets us going. There's this story that people literally get to step into and inherit and take on. It becomes their story. It's beautiful. Anyways, um, so if you're wondering if, um, like Luke, I know it's one of your first times here at the church, like, holy cow, that's a lot. The, the, the secret behind all this is it's all about this story of who God is and his love for us. If you want to see it, just like look anywhere in the room and you'll find something that says, look how much God loves you. Look what he's up to. That's the secret behind the liturgy. All right, so here's, that's kind of our setup. Before we step into this first um, article of the faith, is there any questions? Let me pause there. Questions, comments about any of that? No? We're good? Everybody's like, yes. Okay. I believe in God. This is the, the section that we're looking at right now. Uh, it's question 38. I don't know what page it is because I have my... Page 38? That worked out well. Thank you, teacher's pet. All right, the God, that God is, is one of the assumptions behind this question. We believe in God uh, is, the, is the name of the section. The question is who is God, right? Well, the assumption behind this question is that God is. That God exists. And that's a huge leap for people to take. There's a lot of people who don't believe that God even exists in the first place. So we're taking a leap here. Um, but God is. And um, not in just some sort of like, I, I believe that God exists kind of sense, but I want to take this in a different direction. The very idea of existence, I know this is like philosophical mind-bending, but just think about this for a, for a second. The very idea of being the very idea of existence is there's nothing more profound that suggests God than being itself, existence itself. I love it when people who exist talk about and argue about the existence of God because they're standing on a leg that they're like wanting to dismiss. They exist. They, they like are. They have, they're like here, they can say things. There's nothing more fundamentally suggestive of the existence of God than the fact that is is a thing, that existence is a thing, that being is a thing. I'm saying the fact that we can, like, let's say I don't believe in God and you totally believe in God, and I'm like, look, Kelsey, God doesn't exist. Um, I don't see his, I don't see evidence for him. And there's this kind of like, I'm going to observe the facts and then make a, a judgment about whether God exists or not. Fair enough. 
But something in this whole argument, this assessing of the facts and making a conclusion, is assuming is that um, existence in the first place, being in the first place, is totally assumed here. We haven't even addressed the idea of existence and being. And all I'm saying is, without like, because this is a huge mystery, I'm not sure how we can really um, like check out the evidence of existence and then conclude God. All I'm saying is, the very fact that being, that existence is the thing that we assume so readily, I think suggests something pretty profound, something pretty mysterious outside of being, something that stretches us even outside of the evidence that we can observe and make conclusions about. The fact that we are suggests something beyond us. And I would say that's God. Hilary of Portier, that's who I'm quoting, a fourth century bishop and doctor of the church says, nothing better suggests God than being. He who is can neither end nor, uh, sorry, he who is can have neither end nor beginning. And in order to assert his unapproachable eternity, God needed only to assert solemnly that he is. Ugh, that's a lot. Um, let me, let me, let me, let me um, lay it out this way. When God revealed himself to Israel, what did he reveal about himself? I am. He asserted his being, his existence. And with that comes packaged all of eternity like who he is in and of itself is an incredible revelation that God is, that he has being. Yes? No, you could make that argument. I don't think it's a strong one. But I'm just saying, um, in every argument about, this is like seriously philosophy land, I know that. I know that. Um, but what I'm getting at is this. The fact that anything is should ask, uh, should beg a question or at least suggest, I wonder if there's something that is outside of finite existence and being. If something is, what envelops the is, the being, the existence of the thing? Kind of like a chicken and egg situation. Uh, like our lives started. Is there someone's life who has no, has no beginning and no end from which we have all come? Where did everything come from? What do we mean by like things? There's like a fundamental thing here about being, existence, um, that all I'm saying is, and the church fathers agree, that it feels like um, a loud kind of suggestion that there is something that is beyond being itself. There's something that is beyond our understanding of finite existence. There is something, my goodness. And there's a very, very strong suggestion in the church, at least, that, of course, more than a suggestion, that this is God. Everything has come from him. He is, uh, well, we're gonna get to this in later um, parts of this creed, but we talk about, does God have a beginning? Does God have being? Who's Jesus? Was he created? Was he begotten? What does begotten mean? Um, throughout the entire creed, we're going to... in the middle of the room and everybody's like wait a second that's complicated it is and I don't mean to conclude that but to look at it and go huh even in the first few words of the creed the church is getting at something pretty contentious here we're like actually getting our hands dirty this is good who is God let's ask this question together and uh, and read the answer together who is God God is one divine being 
eternally existing in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Trinity. We might ask, and people have asked this before. I remember being in college, and I think it was Jehovah's Witness. Is it Jehovah's Witness or? Yeah, who don't believe in the Trinity? Yeah, so I had a friend who's a Jehovah's Witness, and he was like, the Trinity, let's argue about this. And so um, I sat down, and he'd say, Sean, where do you see the Trinity in the Bible? And uh, I was studying computer engineering. I was, like, not in seminary or anything like that. So I, but I had, like, some stories. But I remember feeling like, oh, no. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to back this up with Scripture, this Holy Trinity idea. And it's, like, in the catechism. So you guys... You get to cheat. Where do we see the Trinity in the Bible? Um, in Matthew 3, 16 through 17, we see the Lord's baptism. And by the way, anytime you, you have a visual in the scriptures of God, this is called a theophany in theology. So literally, a vision of God, seeing God, which is what we talked about the creeds help us do. In the Lord's baptism, do you guys recall in Matthew 3, the scene? Can anyone retell me the scene of the Lord's baptism? What do you see happening? But who's in the water? God the Son in the water. The, the dove. And then the voice of God the Father speaking from the heavens. That's kind of mind-blowing for first century Jews. <laughs> right? Think about that. Okay, so you have a theophany of the Trinity in Matthew 3. What about uh, Matthew 28, 19? The, the Great Commission? What do we hear in the Great Commission? In what, whose name? So even in the early church in the scriptures, in canon, we see this really explicit description of the Holy Trinity. Interesting. Where do we see it in the Bible? Well, there's two examples. There's more in our catechism even points us to some of that. Let's move on to the next question. According to Holy Scripture, what is the nature and character of God? Let's read together. God is love. Skip that parenthetical note. Sharing an eternal communion of love between three persons. God loves and mercifully redeems fallen creation. God is holy. There we go. Opposed to all sin and evil. God's love is holy. God's holiness is loving. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the fullest expression of God's whole character. Wow, that is uh, dense. I'm, so I'm going to ask this. Um, yeah. Oh, pizzas are here. James, could you sign for the pizzas? Thanks, James. So what do you guys see in this answer? Let's begin toward the beginning. God is love. Specifically, sharing an eternal communion of love between the three persons. What does that mean? Can anyone take a stab at that? This is like some loaded language here. I mean, what do you mean? What does it mean? It seems like it's very relational. And it, I mean, it just, it tells me that, like, that that relationship is so fundamental. I don't know. No, this is exactly it. Keep coming, please. Come out. Tell me. Yes. So when we think of communion of love, we think of like friends or family. So that experience to us 
is actually a characteristic of who God is, which is, that's a tough one to like place in our heads, I think, intellectually. So we go, how so? Hmm. Um, Ooh, so what does this say about being disconnected from people or isolation? Uh, that it's, it's very much out of touch with how things are supposed to be. How things, how things ought to be. But it's also out of touch of like who God is, right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, but check this out. It's more than just lived experience like table groups. Oh, we love this table group. God is like something like this. No, no, no. God is community. He is community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Check that out. In his being is community. In his being is the very essence of love. God is actually love. And in that community of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the relationship between Father to Son, Son to Spirit, Spirit to Father, is a communion of love. That's how we describe their relationship, is purely and truly love. So if we want to know what is love, to quote the famous song, um, where would we look? we would look to who God is to learn about love. So it's not just like sentimental, like, oh, God's so loving, look what he did throughout history. It's actually way deeper than that. When we talk about love, we're talking about a central characteristic of who God is, okay? God loves and mercifully redeems fallen creation. So he has this internal communion of love between him and the, three, the two other persons of the Trinity, and that love, this is, this is really interesting, um, because in this, we see a glimpse of not only friendship, but also holy matrimony and community itself in, in a larger sense, that that community exists for the sake of something else. So God's community, God's love exists and is expressed throughout history in this action of redeeming something other than himself, fallen creation. So it's not as if God is holy trinity and is love, and he's like, I'm over here, I'm good, you be you, I'll be me. No, no, no. The gospel says God is love. He exists as community, and that, he, he expresses that throughout history by redeeming creation, by going, going and redeeming the other. That's how his love is expressed, which, again, if you were to build a theology of community off of this, which you should because that's what Christians do, all community would be understood this way. Our love, what's the relationship between you and I, Tim? It's love. Does our friendship benefit someone else? It ought to. If it's Christian, it's a foe of God, then it does benefit other people. It redeems other things beyond ourselves. If you're married, why, do, why are you married? Why, why are you committed to your husband or your spouse? Um, or how, let me ask you this way. If your marriage is truly a reflection of God, then your marriage isn't just for yourself, but it's to be a blessing to others. Huh, interesting. Fascinating, right? Our community, our church, doesn't exist just so that we can be a holy club. If we want to participate in the characteristics of God, our community at Res exists for the sake of other people. Hmm. You see how, you, how we build this understanding, this theology on who God is. Okay, let's move on. God is holy. God is utterly transcendent, good, righteous, and opposed to all sin and evil. It also says God's love is holy. God's holiness is loving. Okay, is that a play on words? What's going on here? What does transcendent mean? Can I unpack that with you guys? Oh, please, let's have some lunch. If you're hungry, please stand and grab some lunch. We will just keep talking, if that's okay. Kind of a working lunch. Sorry that it was late. 
What does it mean, transcendent? Does anyone have a, an idea of what that might mean? Beyond what? Beyond being. Yeah. God is, what is, why do they say utterly transcendent? Why is utterly such an important word with this transcendent? Luke. Maybe to emphasize the always has been always will be. Yes, like it's a total under, underlining of like not just kind of transcendent or occasionally transcendent, but Right, but completely and wholly, like fully transcendent. It also says he's, so um, beyond being, what does that mean, transcendent beyond being? Why is this important? Because, uh, for instance, we are not pantheists or panentheists who will see God in like the trees and then worship the trees, for instance. Um, For Christians, what we see in this word transcendent is a really emphatic Uh, definition that God is wholly other than. So if we worship objects or created things that God is transcendent of, what do we call those things that we're worshiping, those created things? What's the word for that? They're idols, right? Um, Icons would be something that we see through the thing to God himself who is transcendent. An idol is something that we see and our vision stops there and we don't see God through it. It's just a thing in and of itself that we worship. It's a created thing. That's an idol. God is uncreated. He, is transcend- he transcends creation. He's also good. He's righteous and opposed to all sin and evil. There's so much here that we can talk about. Um, we're going to actually get more to this a little bit later, so I'm debating moving on. God's love is holy. No, I need, to, I need to address this. Good, righteous. All of us, when we go, God is good, we'll go all the time, and it's so easy for us to say that, right? God is righteous, and, and for me, I think, when I think of the righteousness of God, I think of judgment. I think of like this kind of um, not so warm and fuzzy aspect of God, his righteousness, his holiness, and th- what reinforces that idea is when it says, and opposed to all sin and evil, we would say to, to evil, we'd go, yes, we should be opposed to evil. But it's, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have mixed emotions about righteousness and we have mixed emotions about sin. And I think that's because um, we are not righteous and we uh, have sin. Like we're talking about ourselves now. We're saying God is not like us in any way that we are unrighteous or sinful or evil. But the good news in this is that God is actually good. And God is bringing about his goodness. One way we could say this, one way we could say righteous, we could say making things right, setting things right. This is actually who God is and what he's doing. God's love is holy. So there's nothing about God's love that is impure or that is evil or that has sin. It is like purely holy. And God's holiness the righteousness of God, the untainted person of God, the purity of who God is, if you want to know what that looks like, it looks like love. So another way I could summarize this whole statement is to say, God is love, and his love looks like holiness. God is holy, and his holiness looks like love. Yeah, right? No, sorry. The roof's gonna fall down on us. Um, let me, let, me, I, 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 let me say it this way. Um, we know people who are like Bible thumpers who go, holiness, it's all about holiness, who can be really unloving. 
There's something deeply un, un, incoherent about someone who claims to be holy and who is yet unloving. Does that make sense? If you want to be truly holy, your holiness will always be expressed lovingly to others. So don't be a jerk, okay? The Lord Jesus Christ is the fullest, because God's not a jerk. That's what I mean to say. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fullest expression of God's whole character. So everything we've just talked about, the holiness of God, the love of God, the community of love that is God, the fullness of this expression, even the transcendence of God, check this out, this is mind-bending, even the, the otherness of God, the uncreatedness of God, is fully expressed in Jesus. Wow, Hebrews 1.3 says, he is a reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. John's one, John 1.18 says, or I'm sorry, Colossians 1.19 says, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is profound, that all that we're saying about God is found now in Jesus. Not just a piece of it, but the fullness of God is found in Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Okay, this is, uh, that's 39. Question 40, who is God the Father? God the Father, let's read together. God the Father, sorry, should I wait? Ready, ready, pizza in hand, here we go. Who is God the Father? God the Father is the first person of the Holy Trinity from whom the Son is eternally begotten and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds. We're gonna get at this question a little bit later. Um, but I wanna, I wanna look at question 41 because I wanna spend some time looking at why do we call God Father? And we're gonna get back to this first question in just a minute. Question 41, why do you call the first of the three divine persons Father? Together, our Lord Jesus called God Father and taught his disciples to do the same. And St. Paul teaches that God adopts believers as his children and heirs in Christ sending his Holy Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is really, um, how amazing that we can call on the God who created all things, who is holy and transcendent, who is love, and we can call him not just divine being, we can call him Father, Abba, Father. We can cry out to him affectionately in these familial terms. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in, and in one of the gospel accounts, he's, Mary is there with one of the disciples and he says, um, Mary, here's your son. And to the disciple, he says, here's your mother. You're, you remember this in scripture? Where do we get like this whole Mariology thing? The study of Mary is like Mary, the mother of God. Well, she is literally Jesus' mother. But also um, these words of the cross are mysterious in that Jesus hands the disciple off to his mother. The way that God expresses himself to people is so often in this family language, and there's really good reason for that. I know for some of us, the word father may trigger less than nice memories, um, and yet God does not back down of using that term because it's a term that he not only invented, but is also redeeming. If we want to know what it looks like to father children, men, whether biological children or spiritual children in this church, um, we look to God who is Father and he gives us that example. And likewise, if we want to learn to mother, again, biologically or not, or spiritually, um, we, can look to, we can look to Jesus, 
But we can also look to someone like Mary really readily and see this like shining example of what it looks like um, to, to like go with what the Lord is saying even when what the Lord is saying seems impossible. Mary, you're gonna have a child. You remember this? She didn't like rebuke the angel in that message, but she said, Lord, I'm your servant. We see, like, we see it there. And so these, these familial terms, these language, they, they actually should be a cue for us who are fathers and mothers about what that means, what that looks like. So we have this super affectionate term that we can turn to God and say, we can call him our father. On our own, because we've earned it? No. The catechism tells us and scripture tells us that we have been adopted children of God. And it's because we've been adopted through the work of Jesus that we can appeal to God as Father. It's through Christ um, that we can appeal to him as Father. Question 42. What do you mean when you call God Father? When I call God Father, I acknowledge that I was created by God for relationship with him, that God made me in his image, that I trust in God as my protector and provider, and that I put my hope in God as his child and heir in Christ. Does anything stick out to you about this answer? What pops out to you? What catches your attention in question 42? Luke? That you are his child and heir. Tell me, why does that stick out to you, that you are his child and heir? And I think maybe, would it be okay to say, what might be big about that is not the fact that you are a child, but whose child you are. What's big about that is because of what we know of God. And being his child and his heir, you get to inherit the kingdom like you're the son of a king. And all the spoils and the riches that go with that, it's yours. That, that's kind of a big deal, yeah. Quite different than what the world often tells us who we are, right? Or our paychecks or our careers or whatever else tells us we are. Okay? What else sticks out to you guys? Why is that such a big deal? All right, so if you've ever, I love it. Thank you for preaching. I, um, this is so good. And if you guys don't, if you don't learn anything today, learn this. If you've ever asked the question, God, what's my calling? What do you have for me in my life? What do you want me, who am I? What do you want me to do? I, I can answer that for you right today. And you don't have to wonder anymore. You are created to be in relationship with God as his child, not as a foreigner, not as a stranger, not as an enemy, but as his beloved child. And it gets better. Um, you get to inherit his wealth. It's yours through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. That's who you are, and that's what your life's about. That's your calling. Every Christian has this calling to be in relationship with God. What else? Anything else that sticks out to people about this? Why is that so important, Tim? Yeah, the reason that, that's where I think in my life the majority of idols start showing up. Mm. I have doubts of God's protection and provision in my life. 
Mm. That's so good. Mm-hmm. And it makes you think of, like, children, obviously trust their dad to, like, protect and provide. So it's like we have that need in us, too, even as adults. Like, we need someone to protect us sometimes or provide for us. Yeah. We, we have it. Like, we don't have to worry it's there. Thanks to God. Um, I'm, so I'm going to riff on what you guys just said. I think that the secret to, um, let's just talk about being a dad or a parent. And again, I think this applies to any, everybody in here in some way. But the secret to being a good dad, I think, is actually um, coming to God and saying, trying to understand who God is and the, the good things that he's given to me as his child and then taking that goodness, that gift of who God is, and passing it along through me almost sacramentally. I'm like this channel this pvc pipe of the goodness of god right i'm this like medium passing along this abba fatherness to my kids if the the better i can participate with that the better dad i can be so for instance my protection and my providing of my children is only an extension of the protection and the the provision that god gives me in the first place does that make sense like i'm utterly dependent on God's provision and his protection. And if I say to my kids, look, trust me, I got this. And in the same breath, I say, God, you don't got this and I don't trust you. There's like a deep, there's a broken bone there that will eventually collapse. It's like unhealthy. It's just, and it's actually incoherent and a little dishonest um, in some ways. The best way we can provide for others and protect others isn't to be God ourselves, but actually to participate in who God is and bringing that forward into their life. If we can get this, it actually, what, cha- what changes here is this burden of me having to be the Messiah, me having to be that person in someone's life, and instead I can kind of get out of the way and pass along the goodness of God to other people. This is really critical because I'll tell you, when you're standing in the way of it and trying to do this yourself, you feel the burden of that, and you feel all the disappointment and the weight of that, even for yourself. But if you can step out of the way and say, God, you are protector and provider and actually put your trust in that and believe that, it, it's, it does wonders to your relationships because now, based on that, you can provide and protect for other people. See? Like, it's not just dogma. This is, like, real good stuff. All right. Um, question 43? Is that? Yeah. Why do you say that God the Father is almighty? I call the Father almighty because he has power over everything and accomplishes everything he wills. Together with his Son and Holy Spirit, the Father is all-knowing and ever-present in every place. I th- um, hmm, there's like nine thoughts here. Almighty, God has power over everything and accomplishes everything he wills. This is the basis for why Christians can be confident and non-anxious and not threatened in a world where power is up for grabs and everyone is doing violence to one another. We can, we can actually go, we opt out of the cycle of violence. We opt out of um, the idolatry of power and through money or national pride or like any of that business. As Christians, we can actually take a step back and say, again, we can step out of the way of God's power and say, God, you are almighty. Everything that you will will be accomplished 
if that's really true, then there's a whole lot of anxiety that we can take off our shoulders and entrust to God. Jesus says, cast your anxieties upon me because I care for you. This is a real concrete example. If we believe in the almighty power of God, comprehensive, there's nothing beyond his power, and that everything that God wills, think about this, everything that he wills in the world, he will accomplish. If that's really true, then we can actually kind of hide ourselves in his strength in that way, believing that we don't have to go and accomplish everything for, in our own name and by our own power, but actually we can just participate in the will of God that is going to accomplish all things that he desires. So how does this play out? Does this mean that we can see injustice in the world and step back and go, you got this God, right? You're almighty? No. Jesus says, um, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You need to abide in me. He even commands us, love one another. He tells us in Matthew, do it the way I do it. Walk with me. There is a command for us not to check out, but to actually step into and to participate in the almightiness of God in the world. So on one hand, if we confess that God is almighty, on the other hand, our lives should actually participate in that reality. But I think how we participate in that reality um, needs to be very, very um, thoughtful because typically, Traditionally, the way some of this has worked out is like, in the name of God, we're going to like take our country back and we're going to fight for these policies and we're going we're gonna to do all this stuff. Um, we're going to, you name it, right? The Christians are like the first to jump on that and go for it. And, and the whole while, um, it, it, a lot of times it makes me really nervous because I think it's like people's agendas running off away from uh, the very, very critical question, which is square one for us, which is, God, what is your will? What is your will? What do you want to do? How do I serve that? Instead of, what do I want to do and how do I tack God's power on top of it? We want to ask God, what is your will? What does that look like? We always know it looks like love and we always know, Christians in Texas, um, more often than not, participating in the power of God looks like suffering. It doesn't look like coming down on other people and oppressing others. It actually looks like the cross. Let's just be honest about this, which is wildly different than uh, a lot of the assumptions about how power works in this world. It's like wildly different. So when we say we believe that God is almighty, we can entrust ourselves to him, even though we may suffer for a while, we can entrust ourselves to his care because we know that he will accomplish everything that he, that he wills in the end. I feel like I'm opening up a can of worms. Any questions about this? Good, great. Question 44. No, seriously, any questions? Um, so, yeah, that's a great... <laughs> So for thing, yeah, that's a great, thank you, Stella. So there are things on our hearts, all of us, even today, that we, we long for, to God, for God to make right. We long for the goodness of God for people that we know or for situations out in the world or in the neighborhood. Uh, maybe it's like something at home. Or maybe it's our finances. Who knows what, some at work. Um, we long, God, make this right. This ought to be made right. Um, a dear friend of mine died recently um, and they said, we don't want you to really be preachy about it or anything. Like, don't, you know, the do Jesus and stuff on us. And so I basically said, death is not normal. 
And, in, and there's something in all of us that says, someone's got to make this right. Like, we shouldn't die. There should be more life. We, I mean, that makes sense. Like, we were created. Our lives shouldn't end. It seems like there's more to this, that, there, that, that, that things should be made right. That thing in us to say, God, would you make that right? We cry out to him, Abba, Father, make things right. And step two is to, to like Jesus did, I mean, this is literally what he did, cried out, God, if there's another way, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And the thing, what it looked like for Jesus to obey, to entrust himself to an almighty father, looked like um, suffering in that moment. And it doesn't mean suffering at the hands of someone who's abusive. Let me be clear about that. It doesn't always look like suffering in that way. Um, but it, uh, this is like, I gotta say b- both things at once here. If you are in an abusive relationship, whether physically, emotionally, spiritually, you name it, um, God is not calling you to be quiet and to suffer quietly in that abuse at all. You should say something. You should say something to me. You should say something to somebody because that is not the way things ought to be. And, and that needs to be made right. So that whole category, that's a big category actually. Let's put, so that's, I, I pointed that. Let's put that aside for a second. There's also a, a different category of suffering that's like a righteous suffering. That is someone who is so committed to trusting God for things like justice or um, even like, I'm sorry? Mission. Mission, yeah. Or like, let's say, uh, even like health. Um, there are people in the hospital we pray for. We cry out, God, make this right. Heal. Whatever your will is, we want that. And we pray that your will would be to heal these people even now. Um, that, that is a... The kind of suffering that we endure in that prayer um, and the kind of suffering that we endure when we look out in the world and see like kids being malnourished or wars like plaguing the earth, um, we should be able to stand up and say this is not how things ought to be. We should voice the goodness of God and call the world to account, help it to see itself. And the response of the world to us, which will probably be violent because that's the native tongue of the world, um, that suffering that comes to us by announcing the goodness of God and the way things ought to be under his care, Jesus says, they will hate you for this. If you're my disciples, you will be hated. This is a different kind of suffering. And all I'm saying is Christians ought to be surprised if they never receive that kind of suffering. You, you'd be a little bit suspicious, like, am I, re- am I like, following the Lord? Because if I follow him, he's, he's leading me to the cross. And if I'm living a gentle, godly, loving life, I'm going to receive some, some pushback. I'm going to receive from some friction, and I'm going to suffer because of that. It's just just be like a really normal thing. I know for American, like Western Christians, suffering is like, you know, that's a crazy, we shouldn't have to suffer. Uh, we have a right to do this. We have a right to do that. Actually, in the kingdom, um, your, all your rights have been given over to the king, and he has called you to obedience, and sometimes that obedience, that faithfulness, will invite suffering. And that suffering isn't in vain, but it's joined with the Lord's suffering. It's not lost, but it is joined with Christ's suffering and, uh, and is redeemed as well. Does that make sense? There's multiple categories of suffering here that I want to be careful about. But it shouldn't be a surprise to us when we are announcing to the world in love the truth of who God is, and when we're living out that witness, that, um, that we'll receive some flack for that, some pushback. Um, there are probably like nine other categories of suffering in here. And Stella, your question I think is really 
I, th I think I should probably like nuance that even a little bit more, maybe with what you're getting at. But the, that's like a huge picture of it. I don't know if I've really gotten at it. It's my best shot. Yeah, Luke. Right, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay, um, man, we, we get into some juicy topics. Question 44. Why do you call God the Father Creator? Together, I call God the Father Creator because he is the sole designer and originator of everything that exists. He creates and sustains all things through his word and gives life to all creatures through his spirit. So we're getting back to this idea that God as the originator and sole creator, designer, from whom all being comes. Kelsey, this is getting at our little discussion about like being itself has come from God. Someone asked one time, someone asked me to preach a sermon about what if the Holy Spirit didn't exist? And they said, come and preach. Tell us about what it would be like if the Holy Spirit didn't exist. And I know what they're getting at. They're getting at like, well, we wouldn't have the gifts of this and that or whatever. But if the Holy Spirit did not exist, we're talking about the very Spirit of God. If that did not exist, there wouldn't be a sermon to preach. You wouldn't be, like there wouldn't be anything that needed to be said. What is fundamental to existence is God himself because he is the sole designer and originator of all things. So it might be a fun like what if kind of sermon, but really, we should, like, if we're going to address this truthfully, we would say, um, if the thing that sustains all things goes away, then all things go away, right? God is the basis of all being. All things were created through him, sustained by him, through his word. We see word in the answer there that's capital W, um, specifically talking about this um, there's, there's a couple of meanings to this. The word in the Greek is logos, which is like um, the reasoning or the mind of God. This reasoning and mind of God has taken on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus. And so one of the reasons that you see when you look at the altar, you see the gospel book, the scriptures, and the chalice and the patent right next to each other is because we see, that's the word of God. The word of God written, revealed, written in scripture, and the word of God incarnate materialized in the person of Jesus in his body and blood. So when you see that, you're like, oh, a comprehensive look at the word of God. That's theologically pretty dope. Like, that's like really thoughtful. Way to go, guys. Way to go, church. And on those two things, on this, uh, on, upon God the Father, the creator, the sole designer and originator, through him whom he has not only created all things through his word, but also sustains all things through his word, um, the, the entire basis of our lives and existence is, is seen on the altar in some ways, like symbolized at least on what we see at the altar. Interesting. Okay, question 45. How does recognizing God as creator affect uh, your understanding of his creation? This is good. Let's answer. I acknowledge that God made for his own glory everything that exists. He created human beings in his image, male and female, to serve him as creation stewards, managers, and caretakers. He entrusts his good creation to us as a gift to enjoy and responsibility to fulfill. Where's John Mays? He would be weeping right now. He loves this. Creation is meant for something. Your bodies are meant for something beyond just like your pleasure or whatever you want to do with it. Um, when we sprinkle water 
I sprinkle water on you at baptisms, one of the things that I say is you are not your own. You're bought with a price. You belong to Jesus. You are purposed for something. Everything that's created is purposed for something. And we, so, and we are stewards of that thing. Even your own bodies, the world would tell us you have a right to your own body, and you do. Um, but it actually, as Christians, we believe it doesn't even belong to you. You are a steward of this creation that God has given. Did you make your body? No. The person who made your body has given it to you for its purpose to be cared for. It doesn't belong, you don't have the final say about everything that your body entails. You are a steward, a manager, a caretaker of your own body and the entire created world. So the bodies of other people, the bodies of other people, you, they don't belong to you. That's easier for us to go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Um, The creation, it isn't for us to just use and like um, pillage for our resources. It's actually been given to us to steward, to care for. And we'll be held accountable for the way we treat the bodies of other people, our own body, and the created order. We are stewards. So one of, how do we see this in the service? When we bring forward the bread and the wine at the beginning during the offertory, and then we take baskets out and pass baskets around and bring the baskets back, what you're seeing there is, is this um, claim being expressed physically. Uh, the, the fruits of creation that we want to be good stewards of, we present as an offering to the Lord. Lord, thank you for this creation. Like, it comes from you. We're so grateful. Uh, These are symbols of the fruits of the created world. And there's also another symbol. In those baskets are the fruits of our own labor. That we are stewards of our own bodies and our own time and the skills that God has given us. And those fruits are symbolized in those baskets. That's why we give a tithe to the Lord in wealth as we say, all that we have belongs to you, and we want to faithfully and worshipfully express our gratitude from you, all things have come, and we're just mere stewards. My own money, my bank account doesn't belong to me. I'm a caretaker. I'm a steward of this thing that belongs to God. And I, as an American uh, capitalist, I want to confess this by giving money to the Lord. My money is not an idol. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. It's come from him. It belongs to him. And we can say that all day long, but unless we actually step out on a limb and give 10% of our money, it's just all talk. It doesn't have to be just 10%. But unless we step out and actually give and express that, genero- that gratitude through generosity, it could just be just talk. Like, yeah, we believe that this has all come from God and it's really his. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if that's true, why not obey him and in and, and, and gratitude, worship him and give him the fruits of your labor that you're a steward of? Juicy topic, right? Okay. That's, that's the idea. That's where it comes from. Uh, do we have any questions about any of that? No? Okay. Question 45. How does, rec- nope, sorry, question 46. What does it mean that God made both heaven and earth? It means that all things, whether visible or invisible, physical or spiritual, were brought into being out of nothing by the word, by the word of the eternal God, Genesis 1.1. Uh, so I think we kind of covered this, but one thing I want to mention here is that there is more to reality than the material and the visible that this is claiming. All things, whether vis- all things, whether visible or invisible, there are things that are invisible. Yes, there is a reality that is invisible, that is spiritual, and all of it has come from the eternal word of God. Hmm. 
Okay, let's, let's just put that on hold for a minute. Question 47. If God made the world good, why do I sin? Adam and Eve rebelled against God, thus bringing into the world pain, fruitless toil, and alienation from God and each other, and death. I have inherited a fallen and corrupted human nature, and I too sin and fall short of God's glory. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. He goes on to say, uh, life through one man has now come to all of humanity as well. In Adam and Eve, we see this falling of sin. This is our last question, by the way. We see the fall of sin, um, and sin has entered into the world through them. We've inherited that fallen and corrupted nature by them, through them. And in the same way that, that we inherit sin through one person, we, in the same way, you see Jesus as the new Adam who takes that and flips it upside down. And in the same way, in Jesus, we inherit the forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Through one man has come life. My kids have asked me before, and I've even asked this, what does a guy dying on a cross do to save us? This is getting at that answer. Just as sin has entered into the world through one man, so has life come to us through one man, Jesus. You see that? The new Adam. Um, Now what the heck, question 48, how does sin affect you? The God-opposing, self-centered power of sin, which is present in all people, corrupts me and my relationship with God, with others, and with creation. Because of sin, and apart from Christ, I am spiritually dead, separated from God, under his righteous condemnation, and without hope. Ephesians 2 says, you are dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. In verse 3, all of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. Galatians 5:19. now the works of the flesh are obvious, and he starts listing fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the last thing I think needs to be pointed out here is that sin as a, a behavior modification category is pretty lame. Um, we're not saying sin isn't interested when we talk about sin, we're not saying make sure you behave this way for the sake of behaving a good way. What we're saying in these questions, the fundamental claim here, is that sin actually rips you out of communion with God, which we were created for. Like that communion of love that we're like, yes, that's why we're here. Sin is the opposite of that. It's separation from God. It's God opposing. It's self-centered. And it's present in all people. It corrupts. It works against our relationship with God. And in Galatians, we see just kind of a laundry list of like, here's a few examples. I was watching um, Charlie and the, or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is actually the title of it, which is one of my, probably my favorite movie of all time. And I was noticing that all of the kids who win the golden tickets, I was telling Michelle, I'm like, huh, here's my theory yesterday. All of those kids represent um, some of the, like the seven deadly sins. And I'm like, oh my gosh, 
That's crazy. Even Charlie has, has, is expressing the sin of envy. Like, I have the same chance as anybody else. And even Willy Wonka, who's like in his like tirade at the end, is expressing this like sin of anger. Even maybe if it's like kind of true, he's still like almost abusive in his anger to this poor little boy. And the, the factory is like this paradise, you know, and the, who knows what the Oompa Loompas are, I don't know. Um, but we see each of these children get given the, the, all, the fullness of their desires in this like chocolate factory, and that those desires, when they chase them down, actually lead them into this corrupted, broken, fallen away kind of relationship with the paradise that they want. Um, and it isn't until Charlie confesses and, and like repents and gives back the everlasting gobstopper and says, this is, it belongs to you and makes things right that the, the fullness of like, um, like redemption, we start to see redemption in this beautiful story. Anyways, a little side, side note. But all that to say, uh, maybe this is not reinforcing the point at all, it's just fresh in my mind, but all that to say is sin is, is actually more than just saying, no, don't do that. Sin is actually... Um, working against the things you deep down most desire, the good things in life, sin works against those things. Those good things in life, like love, God is love. So sin is opposing your approaching the goodness of God and his love and enjoying that love. Sin is the thing that drags us away from that. So when we say we hate sin, we want to condemn evil, yeah, we, anything that keeps us from the love of God, we, we want to fight against, we want to resist that temptation and that sin, um, which is way more robust understanding of sin than just um, kind of this preacher finger-waving, Bible-thumping condemnation of people um, because they behave not the way we want them to. No, sin is this thing that's opposing who God is and the kingdom that he's wanting us to inherit as his children. Sin works against all that. Sound good? All right, folks, this concludes the lesson today. Thank you for being here. Uh, Let me pray a brief blessing for you, God. We ask that uh, in all of our learning today, you would stay with us. You would would be ringing in our ears these things that you have taught us. Would you help us to continue to unpack these profound theological truths and live them out by your mercy, by your grace. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.